0: Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature Podcast. When a child reads a letter of St. Paul aloud in church, it does not matter if the child himself understands the reading. It only matters that he pronounces the text correctly. When the words of the letter are pronounced correctly, it is as though Paul himself is speaking to the church. It does not matter that it happens to be a child. The words of Scripture speak for themselves. This is exactly how Jesus handles the devil in chapter four of Matthew. Jesus himself does not speak. He merely recites the text of Scripture and without ever making an argument, let alone lifting a finger, The full power of his father's authority is brought to bear through the written content of Deuteronomy. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. This is Father Mark Bulos, And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 239 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We have mentioned more than once that Matthew controls the New Testament. It sets precedent as the first book. The genealogy is, in a way, a summation of the Bible's construction of Hebrew against Hellenism. It's a summation of the storyline of the Old Testament. But it also, again, as we've mentioned, contains many elements, narrative elements from the Old Testament that has prompted many scholars to refer to Matthew as a mini Torah. That characterization, is correct i think scholars sometimes fall short of seeing the bigger picture that not only matthew but the entire new testament is a regurgitation literally a regurgitation of the torah what's new in the new testament is not the content of the teaching what's new is the expanded audience the new testament is
1: opening up the torah to the gentiles but it doesn't just expand it and say here you go matthew is staying very close to this main theme of obedience and leadership and what is true kingship so when we read the following passage we have to read this as a battle between the lord's desire for obedience and the human ego's desire to follow itself it's the self versus god The person's will
0: versus God's will. Human thought versus God's instruction. It's so funny you mention this because, of course, last Tuesday, Father Paul talked once again about Scripture being anti-power, but also anti-proprietorship. And that's how God's kingship functions in the Old Testament and in the New Testament as a way to take away proprietorship and to take away power from human beings. And this is how Scripture, of course, differs from... Hellenistic ideals, whether it be Plato's philosopher tyrant, who is yet another supposed wise human who controls everything through some correct philosophical ideology, or the ideals of democracy, where each person exercises influence by standing up and taking a piece of the power to themselves. Scripture is taking a totally different approach that goes against the grain of these ideas. It's saying to the extreme that no human being can have power, period. Not power exercised in a vote, not power exercised according to some supposed human wisdom. No human being can take power. And this is why the shepherd metaphor, the idea of the shepherd of flock specifically is so critical because as a sheep in the flock, of the one shepherd. You don't have a vote, you don't have a say. You don't even have a choice because you can either accept the instruction and live with the flock or ignore the voice of the shepherd and become abandoned to the grave in the wilderness. The human
1: being is going to die. This is the problem with this whole understanding where the best use of power is by human beings who have been enlightened. That's how the whole Hellenistic idea works, whether it's Plato and the way that you, through dialogue, perfect yourself and you become better in the virtues, or democracy where each person has their own idea and their own will and the sum of those wills is going to be a good result. Either way, the problem is, is you're putting your hope in the human ego. Either way, even if it's a perfected ego, it's still a human ego. And the human ego, from the very beginning, we go back to Adam, led us out of the garden, led us out of paradise, and led us out of the perfection that God had prepared for human beings, because as soon as human beings rejected the will of God there was nothing good left for them because the will of God also is the prosperity that comes from God. It's all wrapped up in the same thing. There's not wisdom from one source and the crops from another source. According to scripture,
0: they come from the same source. This is why Jesus is not a moral example. He does not represent a moral ideal. He does not personify what we think of as the best human being. All of these propositions about Jesus are born out of, generally speaking, Hellenistic philosophy. It's a Hellenistic worldview that seeks an ideal. Scripture is presenting you something that is anti-idealic. Jesus has no power, he has only to obey his Father, and by every measure of what we consider ideal, he is, in human terms, a failure. It's a nice idea to say Jesus sets a great example, but how can abject failure be an example? That's why the cross is such a critical metaphor in the content of the gospel because it is given to cancel out your desire for an ideal so that all you're left with is your place as a sheep following the shepherd in the wilderness and you have to strain to hear exactly what his instruction is so that you don't become abandoned and left to die left for the wolves literally. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Again, beginning of chapter four, Jesus is led by the spirit of his father, so he's not in control. And you have to recall our discussion of the Mark and Prologue or of Acts where the spirit is carrying Jesus. Jesus has no control. He has no power. This isn't an inspirational movement, the way we think of being led by the spirit. This is the spirit grabbing Jesus and dragging him out into a dangerous, lonely place.
1: The spirit is what leads someone to one place or prevents them from going to another place. Like you said, it's not inspirational. It's not something that happens to their soul. It's directing where they go. It's interesting to see how it works and acts. And in the last chapter, the spirit is what will eventually baptize to instill the word into the people, but it's also the thing that came down when God said, this is my beloved son. It was the spirit in the form of a dove, but it was the spirit. It was God's breath that came down. The interesting thing about the Greek is that it's not just by the spirit, but it's under the spirit. Ipo, ipó ipotupnevmatos means under the spirit. So he is already showing subservience to the spirit that said he's the beloved son. So rather than the spirit puffing him up, It's putting him down
0: as he moves out into the desert. It's 1 Corinthians because the church in Roman Corinth is talking about the spirit the way modern Christians do. I'm filled with the spirit. And it's filling them up like a balloon. And Paul has to run around with a pin popping their egos, popping these balloons that are full of the spirit. Because like we just said, the human ego
1: is not where salvation lies. That's not where wisdom lies. It's the spirit that brings wisdom to human beings, which is from outside human beings. And then secondly, he leads them to the wilderness. And anytime I hear wilderness, I'm just going to go directly to Sinai. Because this is where God leads the people in order to make them his own by giving them his law. And why does he give them his law? So that they become subservient. This is how it works in Hosea chapter 3. When the people have gone astray... When the land has gone astray and they've been harlots, he has to take them to the desert where specifically there are no kings, there are no princes, there's no ephod or teraphim, there's no trappings of the temple, there's no trappings of human power. It's them and God and that's it. And when it says it's God, it doesn't mean that there's an aurora borealis that takes on the form of it. I'm not talking about stars singing. I mean that there is nothing but God to keep them alive, and his will is all that leads them in the correct path.
0: And by the way, I'll just say now, as we move forward, that's what this section is about, because the devil, very soon, is going to try to poke and prod Jesus to flex his muscles, but the point that Matthew is making in this section is that Jesus, before his father, is yet another sheep. That's the point of his humanity, He's a sheep. He has no power. He has only to obey the voice of the shepherd. We think of Jesus as the pimino kalos, which he is. He's the good shepherd. But he himself is shepherded by his father. It's a pecking order. Always remember, that's why this example that's come up a couple times in the last week or so on the podcast, both on our show and on the Tuesday show, this example of the relationship between the bishop and the priest. When the priest is serving alone, even if he's a junior priest, if he's serving before the holy table, he is the priest. If the bishop is present, then the bishop takes his place. But when the bishop's not there, the priest is the head of the community. That's how you have to understand the headship of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Matthew. His headship is secondary to the headship of his father and of course one of the big debates between the latin church and the greek church was over this question of the procession of the holy spirit and this of course became a huge issue in the great schism namely that in the greek profession of faith you say that the holy spirit proceeds from the father and in the latin rendering of the text you say that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And the argument of the Greek fathers, of course, was that you can't say that because the Father is the head. So just remember, hierarchy is of the essence. If you don't think in terms of hierarchy and protocol, you're not hearing scripture. If you think in terms of our modern setting and you hear the weakness of Jesus as egalitarianism, you will never find your way to the kingdom in the Gospel of Matthew. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. This Richard flows nicely with your point about the wilderness of Sinai, because the 40 days obviously is an Exodus metaphor. It's the wandering in the wilderness. And the hunger really emphasizes this point that Jesus now in the wilderness, under the control of the spirit, under the pressure of his Father's will through the Spirit, is hungry. He needs sustenance, and he can only look to God for the manna from the heavens.
1: I'm going to jump ahead and mention the miracle of the loaves when the disciples wanted to send the people away because there's no food in the wilderness. This is Jesus in the wilderness with no food yet depending completely on God to fulfill his needs. This is the correct approach that we see from the Old Testament, which is when God provides everything, one depends only on God, and it doesn't matter what the setting, because you can starve when there is an abundance of food, and you can be well-fed when you're in the middle of the wilderness, depending on what God decides, because God in the prophets is always talking about, I'm going to trample down your vineyards, and I'm going to kill your grain, So you can have an abundant crop, but right before it's ready to harvest, God can do something to end that, and you'll end up starving.
0: And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. So here, the devil is playing on, or attempting to play on something that isn't there, which is the ego of Jesus. He's trying to play on the ego of Jesus and prod him and poke him to flex his muscles And what's interesting about the test here in verse three is that, again, for me, it's reminiscent of 1 Corinthians because the theologians, for lack of a better term, the philosophical theologians at Roman Corinth were using the words of Paul, but twisting them into something egotistical. And here in verse three of chapter four, the devil is playing on this idea that God can raise up children of Abraham from the stones through his teaching. It sounds decent. Can you make bread from a stone? But he's using this teaching that John the Baptist shared earlier to do something different than what Scripture is trying to achieve. Scripture says we can raise up children of Abraham from the stone, which is a way of saying that the bread of the teaching can produce children. The odd thing is this translation that if you're the son of God, command that these stones be
1: made bread. Actually, the Greek just says, say in order that these stones become bread. It's telling him to speak. If you are the son of God, then act like God and imitate the way that God acts. And this is the problem that you've
0: been talking about, Father. It's Genesis, Richard. It's the same thing that happened in the garden. Don't you want to be like God? Why isn't God letting you discern between good and evil? Aren't you like God? Jesus, speak. Speak, Jesus. Say something. Say something. Please speak. Notice how we think of, egotistically, we think of ourselves as being filled with the Spirit so we can speak. Jesus is under the control of the Spirit so that he won't speak. The devil wants him to give a word. He can't. Well, this is the
1: dangerous thing about when human beings in the churches call themselves sons of God or they want to be little gods or whatever they say because then that gives them the right to then act like God. But the problem is that only God is just. Human beings don't know how to be just. Only God is merciful. Human beings don't know how to be merciful. Human beings do nice things from time to time, but they don't know how to be merciful. And in this case, Jesus is in a complicated situation because, well, if you're son of God... Then make these stones into bread. Well, if Jesus did not depend completely on his Father, then why was he hungry? Jesus was a human being who depended completely on his Father to provide for him. The trick is that Jesus has to realize that he needs, he lacks. If he lacks and if he needs, he depends completely on God. If he depends completely on God, then he's going to be obedient completely to God. So, Jesus has to admit the reality of his situation, which is that he is hungry.
0: But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And here I want to reiterate what we said just a minute ago. Jesus is under the control of the spirit so that he would not speak. This goes against everyone's understanding of the function of the spirit the function of the spirit is to control you so that the only thing that passes across your lips is the written text of deuteronomy and that's what jesus is quoting here the only way that jesus can satisfy the hunger in his belly is with the written text of deuteronomy i want everyone to hear it again it's with the written text of the law for all of you who really believe foolishly that the New Testament dismisses the law, Jesus here is telling you, and he is telling the devil, that the bread that sustains me in the wilderness is the book of Deuteronomy. It's the word that proceeds from the mouth of my Father. The only thing that keeps Jesus alive is his obedience and At
1: one point, his obedience is going to be the end of his life because that's the human destiny is that we're all going to die. He doesn't just live by every word, but the word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He has to say from the mouth of God because he always mentions the arhi, the only one who is the head, which is God. He's saying my life completely depends on God whether there's bread or not. By bread, I mean literal bread, because the one thing that there always is, whether there's literal bread or not, is the metaphorical bread, which is the manna from heaven, which is the word.
0: Notice the insidious lie in verse 3 that becomes yet more clear when you read verse 4. The devil is playing on this idea of being able to make something out of a stone, as John the Baptist said, but what he wants to make is something materialistic. And this is Paul's ultimate critique of the church at Roman Corinth. You're talking about the spirit and you're living high off the hog. Whereas I'm controlled by the spirit and I'm like the wastewater from the Roman toilet. I'm getting dragged through the streets and beaten. So which spirit are you full of? What are we talking about? It's a worldly spirit. It's a human spirit, a false spirit, because it's not coming to you from the content of Paul's gospel it's coming to you from the Roman Sympathine when you go to socialize with these wealthy Romans to gain status in Roman culture and it's causing you to be an abuser but again this is the lie this is the lie of so much of modern theology you talk about heavenly things in order to achieve something worldly and that's how the devil is trying to play with Jesus in this text. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. I like this example in verse five because he's taking him to the top of the temple. So here Matthew is telling you that for all of you theologians who believe the lie of the devil and seek something worldly, for you, the peak of achievement is the peak of your church building, the peak of your temple. That's how you measure success. And that is not the bread of life. That's the bread that you put into your mouth and that passes through the stomach and goes out into the Roman latrine. And he doesn't
1: say he took him to Jerusalem. He took him to the holy city. You and I have been talking for nearly 240 episodes about the problem of the city. The city's always been a problem since who built the first city? Cain built the first city. The first murderer built the first city. So the holy city, I can't help but hear it tongue-in-cheek. Because what city is holy? The only city that's holy is the one that God creates that is not made by human hands, which you have to obey his will to
0: become a citizen of. It continues in verse 6. And said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written... He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Once again, the devil is taking a text that is meant to amplify the helplessness of the Lord's subjects and trying to use it to get Jesus to flex his muscles. You see how insidious the fine line between worldly power and worldly achievement and material affluence, you see how insidious the fine line is between that and the helplessness of someone under the control of the
1: spirit of the father. This is like a small time mafioso who's always shooting off his mouth and someone says to him, really, if you're such a big time mafioso, then make your father do these things. If you're the son of God, jump off and make him send his angels. If you're hungry, make him allow you to turn these rocks into bread. If you're the son of God, then act like it, then be like it, then strut your stuff, now show what you got. Because if you're the son of God, then your father would wanna
0: take care of you because that's what a good father would do, right? But Jesus, of course, is not a spoiled rich kid from the East Coast, so he's not gonna fall for that trick. And it's interesting too, Richard, that again, at the center of the test is this question of the stone. So the devil here, by quoting Psalm 91, is trying to get Jesus to trip over the stone that John the Baptist was referring to earlier in the text. But Jesus is not going to trip up. Jesus is not going to speak. I want everyone to listen carefully. The Lord Jesus Christ does not speak. So all the theories about how scripture doesn't let women speak, but lets men speak, are invalid because Jesus himself does not speak. And he's not an alpha male, but by the standards of Western literature, you want to read him as an alpha male. Well, guess what? He is a negative alpha male. He has no power and he has no opinions. He has no ideas and he has nothing to say except what was given him by the scroll of Deuteronomy. And that's how he responds to Satan. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written. I know, Richard, we try not to stop in the middle of the verse, but I want to start the verse over so that I can say it is written twice. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So here, Jesus is pushing back, but he's not pushing back of his own will. He's pushing back with the will of his Father. That's the one thing he is allowed to say, and he can say it with authority. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, not because he agrees with that statement, but because it is written.
1: And this word in Greek, ekpirasis, reminds me of pirasmon, which is the temptation which... We pray God leads us out of, when we say lead us not into temptation. This is a test of the will to test one's loyalty. We beg God not to test our loyalty. What the devil is doing is saying, test to see where God's loyalty lie. If you're the son of God, then every time he should come down on your side because you're his son. The devil is twisting this. Is it Jesus' job to be loyal to his father's will? Or is it his father's job to be loyal to Jesus's will? This is the absurd situation that the tempter is putting Jesus in, but it's the absurd situation we're in all the time when we're trying to figure out, oh, do I want to do this? Do I want to do that? When it's simply written what we need
0: to do, and we carry that out. Jesus is not responding to this by saying, you can't talk about my dad that way, or he's my dad. He's the best dad ever. The way people talk when they understand loyalty and worldly terms that's not the kind of loyalty that the father demands he doesn't care if jesus loves him and we'll hear later in matthew i don't care if people love me and say lord 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 i don't care i'm interested in people who obey my instruction so the way that jesus demonstrates loyalty isn't by giving a show of affection or emoting his loyalty and defending god no he simply quotes his father's teaching. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. If more Christians did this instead of going on talk shows and defending their issues, if they actually just stuck to the text, there'd be less issues in the world. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And here the word again for me is critical, balin, which means Again, another once more. The idea here is that the very high mountain, Richard, is analogous to the peak of the temple. He's not going higher. He's saying whether you go to the height of the mountain to worship Baal or you go to the height of the temple to worship Baal. If you test the Lord your God, if you seek to exercise power, if you try to speak your own word, you are functioning in service to Baal. Kingdoms.
1: The glory of all the kingdoms he gets to see. Well, we've got to see what kingship has been doing so far in the book and the problem with kingship and the way we need a new type of king. The tempter is showing Jesus the glory of these kingdoms. But I'm going to say so-called glory, just like he took him to the so-called holy city. We don't have glory of kingdoms. We don't have... Holiness of cities when we're talking about God. It doesn't make sense. It's only from a human perspective that this holiness or glory can even make sense. So if you're going to show him and impress him by the glory of human kingdoms, if that's impressive, you've already rejected God. Because, like we've said, Paul is trying to reverse what you understand as power and glory if Jesus accepts the human understanding of what glory is he's done now he's just a philosopher king
0: as paul says richard me janito may it not be so god forbid that jesus be understood perceived or manifested as a philosopher king it's totally anti-scriptural and he said to him all these things i will give you if you fall down and worship me which is of course satan's ultimate objective he wants to be at the pinnacle of the temple He wants to be at the top of the mountain. He's trying to cause Jesus to stumble over the stone of instruction so that he can then subjugate Jesus and achieve his own ascendancy. And of course, Jesus responds not by arguing or defending as we've said, but by conducting Bible study with the devil. Let me explain to you what Deuteronomy says. This is the plainest I've seen it written that
1: the glory of human civilization is satanic because how can the tempter offer these to jesus if they don't belong to him the glory of these kingdoms is satanic meaning it belongs to satan satan just said it and jesus didn't dispute it everyone
0: understands that the glory of the kingdoms is satanic i have disappointing news for all of you fans of rick Riordan. he's a great writer but The light of Western civilization that he's so excited about in his fictional books is satanic, according to the Gospel of Matthew. This is, again, a frontal assault on the Hellenistic ideal of civilization. You have to hear scripture. It is going against the grain of everything that we naturally value as human beings, the things that we naturally aspire to, the things that we are naturally proud of. We are not interested in the light of Western civilization or Eastern civilization. It doesn't matter, it's all passing away. We're interested in the light to the nations, which is the content of Deuteronomy, the content of the Pentateuch. This cannot be stressed enough. The light to the nations is the content of the Old Testament. The New Testament is the invitation to that feast, to partake of that bread the bread of Moses, which Jesus is now carrying to the Roman Empire. Then Jesus said to him, go Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And I'm gonna borrow Father Paul's expression. The father of Jesus is the sole proprietor and therefore Jesus understands correctly. In his hearing of Deuteronomy, Jesus understands that that makes him the slave of the sole proprietor. So if you want to emulate Jesus, as we said last week, you don't emulate his morality, you don't emulate his actions, you emulate his slavery to the will of his father, his slavery to the spirit of his father. It's very powerful. Jesus doesn't react to the civilization
1: or the glory. It's only this last phrase that Satan said, to bow down to me. Jesus repeats that word in his response. The Lord your God, worship. This is the only one you're allowed to worship. This is the choice. Do you want to worship Satan? Because with Satan comes the glory of the kingdoms. Or do you want to worship the Lord? So that's the choice. That's the choice that Jesus had to make. And that's the choice that Jesus did make. Jesus said, I'm only going to serve the Lord, which means I can't accept the glory of the kingdoms that you're offering because the deal is I have to worship you and scripture itself says I can't. So therefore, if I'm going to remain loyal to the word of God, I have to not bow down to anyone but the one who gives me this word. The mealy-mouthed human being always tries to find a way to get what he wants and still justify somehow that he's not bowing down to Satan. When The problem is you're starting with what you want. You're starting with the human ego and trying to fit God in afterwards. You have to begin with God and his will. And you can't know God's will unless you know scripture. And you can't know scripture unless you're constantly repeating it with your mouth and in
0: your mind and then in your actions. In verse 11, you have finally divine exousia and you have the glory and honor that Paul speaks of in his writings applied to Jesus. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. It's exousia because it's the power of God freeing Jesus from the tyranny of the devil. Because to the extent that Jesus is totally obedient and totally subservient to his father under the control of the spirit, there's nothing the devil can do. The weakness and the subservience and the slavery of Jesus to the will of his father renders the devil powerless. This is how it works in Scripture. This is why when the marketing companies get you to express yourself so that you can buy their soft drink, you are not really free and you are not truly expressing power because you are being controlled. When you give yourself to the control of God's wisdom, then you have power, but it's not your power. Then you're free, but you're not free to do what you want but you are free from the tyranny of the enemy of God. And of course, the angels coming to minister to him is the honor and the glory that God will crown Jesus with in the crucifixion.
1: But God had to decide it. It had to be God's will to minister to Jesus, not Jesus's job to manipulate his dad to get what he wants, not to convince his dad, hey, shouldn't you send your angels to come minister to me? No, he said only what God wants, only what my father wants. What you said about marketing is exactly right, because if I sit back and I say, do I want Coke or do I want Pepsi? Well, the marketers have already won, because they put the question in my head, should I drink Coke or should I drink Pepsi? If I begin with scripture, the question of Coke or Pepsi never comes to mind. What scripture says is the word that proceeds from the mouth of God.
0: And God is merciful because he doesn't confront you with a question. He confronts you with a commandment. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.